Women have been playing football for more than 150 years, and it's always been political. Some have been celebrated, but others have been ridiculed, criticized, and forgotten. This is the Forgotten 11, the hidden history of women's football. I'm not going to the White House. No. You know, there was a lot of critics talking about us, but we're back, so suck in that one. <laughs> Give me the effing ball. Playing like a girl means you're a badass. Welcome to the Forgotten 11. I'm Chris McGlynn. If uh, you like the show, uh, please follow the show on Twitter at ForgottenXI. Uh, share on social media and uh, leave a review wherever you listen to the show. All right, on to today's show. It's late at night. Maybe the coach wanted to play at night because of the daytime heat. Maybe to keep a low profile. And you're playing in the street because that's the only place you can play. You're up 1-0 and it's nearly the end of the first half. Suddenly, it's the police. Someone shouts run and you do. Everyone scatters, every girl for herself. But just before you turn the corner, you look back. The police have the coach and it looks like they got Arlotina and Endina too. Your place isn't far, so you head there and lock the door. Soon though, the police are knocking. You sit there, silent in the dark. The police keep knocking for a while, but it's late. Eventually they leave. You're safe for tonight. Science fiction? No. It's a true story, and I bet you'll never guess where. First, Here's a test that might save your life, if the world is ever invaded by aliens that have the power to look human. It's sort of a mental shibboleth. It's a way to catch a spy. So to explain that word, shibboleth, a story. In World War II, Germany spent, sent spies to the US and England. These guys were good. They spoke perfect English. They had stories that they were from Nebraska or Iowa. They graduated from University of Wisconsin or Cambridge. It was perfect. It was impossible to tell that they were German, except for one simple, almost stupid little thing. They couldn't say the word squirrel. Squirrel. Their German upbringing made them say squirrel, turning the U into a V. All that work, years of pretending to be American or British, ruined by one little word. That's a shibboleth. Okay, back to the aliens. If you ever want to know if someone is an alien, ask them what Brazil means. If they say anything other than football, they are an alien. Brazil is the only country that has participated in every single men's cup. The only one. They won it in 58, 62, 70, 94, and 2002. Brazil has been playing football since 1894. They currently have around 30,000 registered teams in Brazil. And that means around 700,000 professional players. And the players, Romario, Rivaldo, Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, Kaká, Neymar, Marta, Formiga, and of course Pele. They're household names around the world. I mean, Pele hasn't played a match in more than 40 years and everyone still knows who he is. 
It's as if an entire country dedicated themselves to nothing but football for over a century. Well, that is kind of what they did. Children play and practice in all the ghettos, hoping one day that they will be good enough to go to Europe and play, make millions, and then lead their country to World Cup victory. Everything in Brazil stops for the World Cup. So you might find it a little surprising that beginning in August of 1941, women could be arrested for playing the national sport, and some were. The lawmaking women's football crime lasted until April 11th, 1983. The first football match in Brazil was in 1894, and from here on it gets complicated. The story of football in Brazil in some ways tells the story of Brazil, and Brazil's history is complicated. It's complicated racially and politically, it's compl complicated economically and culturally. There are lots of stories to tell about Brazil and football. I'm not going to get to all of them, obviously, but I do want to give you an idea of what women's football in Brazil is like, the uniqueness. Football in Brazil starts in 1894 as a white man's game, but less than half the country is white. It's also a game for the wealthy, but a huge portion of the country lives in poverty. Brazil is famous for its favelas, or ghettos, but it's also famous for Carnival, one of the biggest parties in the world. So how did football go from a rich white guy sport to a sport for everyone, men and women, rich and poor? Like I said, it's complicated. We don't know exactly when women started playing in Brazil, but the first confirmed match was in 1921. It seems likely that women were playing before that, though. The reason we don't know is matches from the 19-teens. Starting in about 1915, men started playing matches dressed as women. And some newspapers couldn't tell that they were men, so maybe some of the matches were played by women. We just don't know. But from 1921, we do know that women are playing. This first match was played in a men's stadium between teams from neighboring parts of Sao Paulo. In 1923, the men's team, who would win the league with Brazil's first mixed-race team, also, also fielded their first women's team, SC Femenino Vasco da Gama, which suggests that the women's game was quite popular. In the 1920s and 30s, Brazil is changing. Women are entering the workforce, which strains the male-dominant worldview. Brazil is trying to modernize, which for most Brazilians means trying to be more European, culturally, industrially, and racially. Yeah, racially. There was an idea at the time that if a society acted like a so-called more advanced society, it would become like that society, physically and mentally. As if drinking lots of tea and playing football would help you build something like the British Empire. There were a few ways women came into the game. The first and easiest was as fans. The second was as members of athletic clubs. And the third was kind of interesting. Traveling circuses. I'll get to that later. So as football becomes more popular, more and more women are attending matches, and they start joining those clubs. And remember, a, a club is a whole community of people. 
You could almost think of it as a commune. But it's still a commune about sports. While these clubs practice other sports as well, football was becoming king. And many of the clubs had equal numbers of men and women. I mentioned Brazil is changing a lot in the 20s. Ideas about the nation, the role of men and women in society are changing. The idea that men are strong and rough and that women are soft and elegant is being challenged, especially as women are entering the workforce. The idea that being European or white is a good thing can't really survive in a country with a majority of people of mixed race. So even the idea of race is changing. One of the places that challenged these ideas is the athletic club. The other members of your club become your family. In the 20s and 30s, clubs help integrate different communities, different ethnicities, and different genders. But these clubs are not the only place women are playing football. Like lots of places, Brazil had traveling circuses in the 1920s. But if you're thinking elephants in a big tent, you'd be wrong. At the time, circuses were very different, and there were more of them competing against each other from town to town. These circuses attempted to create a separate world, or several different worlds. And there would be different events at different times. Some of the circuses regularly performed plays like Shakespeare. Another might have clowns and acrobats. The point was, the circus was in this world, but from some other magical place. And this gave them a special power. If people think you're from some other place, then you probably don't have to follow the same rules or customs. You'll have different values. Circus performers, like many others, because it's make-believe, they can criticize society. They can poke fun at it. There's an old saying, if you want to tell people the truth, you'd better make them laugh, or they'll kill you. In the 20s and 30s, Brazil is a very unequal society, economically, racially, and women face discrimination in almost everything. The circus was a place where you could flip things on their head. While women faced discrimination on the pitch at athletic clubs and in the newspapers, the circuses were places where women could play matches without criticism. And they played a lot of them. The circuses would often move to a new city, look at the local men's football rivalries, and have the women don the local jerseys and play a tournament. The local teams wouldn't object because it was a circus. It wasn't real. And they would move on soon enough anyway. The locals loved the matches, sometimes attended by thousands. Also, it seems that most of the circuses didn't have 22 dedicated women footballers. In each town or city, they would recruit local women to play with them. Maybe those women already played with their local club, but especially in the smaller towns, many of those recruits would be playing football for the first time. The circuses were introducing women all over Brazil to the national sport. And because the women were playing in a circus, it didn't matter if they were rich or poor, or black or white or native. And none of the spectators cared either. No matter how transgressive these circus matches were to social norms, it was perceived as unreal, 
a temporary suspension of the rules. Some of the women may have joined the circus to play, but these matches inspired other women to found their own clubs all over Brazil. By 1940, women's football was popular in Brazil. Sure, there were critics, but there were also plenty of fans. And the players and fans seemed to have the attitude of, if you don't like it, don't watch it. There were women's teams everywhere, in the cities and in the country. New teams are forming all the time. Thousands attend the matches. Rio saw the creation of a proper women's professional league with 10 teams. And just as impressively, the league was racially integrated. And there's other evidence of other women's leagues forming throughout Brazil. Thousands of matches are played every day. But there were also problems. Sports writers who opposed women's football started bad-mouthing the players, saying they were partying and drinking and worse. Police and courts attempted to block women from traveling to matches so they would not spread their supposed moral corruption. None of it was true, but it did slow the women down. Getulio Vargas was president of Brazil from 1930 to 1937, when he became Brazil's dictator. He lasted until 1945. In April 1940, he signed Decree Law 3199, creating Brazil's National Sports Council in charge of all sports in Brazil. In September, the council declared that competitive team sports were unsuitable for women. This included rugby, polo, water polo, boxing, many track and field events, and of course, football. Resistance began immediately. Players and others wrote to papers, basically telling the writers, the government, and critics to mind their own business. And they kept playing, especially in the South, in Piranha State. But now they played quietly. By the mid to late 40s, newspapers began covering women's football in slightly coded language. They would bury a brief story about a match between two women's teams deep in the paper, often just a single line. The papers rarely mentioned the players, probably because they were protecting their identities, and the fans continued to turn out. And the Piranha Football Federation, or PFF, continued to support the women despite the ban. They are constantly reprimanded by the National Sports Council. The PFF seemed to just ignore them. In 1956, SC Vitoria and SC Bahia played in the largest stadium in Salvador da Bahia and raised about $12,000 from fans in attendance. The local papers say the fans were enthusiastic and the play was good. A photo of the team shows that both teams are racially integrated. By 1950, the government had to reissue the ban on women's football, so teams decided to change their strategy. The matches would be charity fundraisers. The government took promoters to court to try and stop the teams. Sometimes they were successful. Often, though, they were not. And remember the traveling circuses? It appears that the National Sports Council completely ignored those football matches. It seems that the government's ban was never really successfully enforced. 
1959, the police stormed onto a pitch during a, a charity match to stop the woman from playing. It turned into a bizarre scene when the players started fighting back against the police. The Globe newspaper reported that the National Sports Council had lost its war on women's soccer, along with a good bit of their credibility. After this, the uh, <clears throat> women's teams start forming and playing more openly. And it seems similar stories can be found across the country. It appears that the ban was only ever effective at all in Rio and Sao Paulo. And after the fiasco of the police raiding a pitch, even government institutions like schools begin forming women's teams. Some men's teams begin forming women's teams, even saying that they can make more money from the women's matches than the men's. At other times, another strategy to ignore the ban, women would form a couple of teams to play a single match, then dis dissolve the teams after. They would repeat the exercise the following week. So the women clearly had a network of players in any given place. Constantly forming and dissolving teams would give the players some level of protection and anonymity. Even if it made it hard to build the women's game, there at least would continue to be a women's game. In 1960, women launched an official campaign to lift the ban. They took their case to the Brazilian Confederation of Sports. It was unsuccessful. The 60s were a bit rough politically for Brazil, but changing governments continued to enforce the ban. It seems that the various governments had to reissue the ban with increasing frequency because women were playing more and more. The 1960s and 70s are a dangerous and violent time in Brazil. There are coups, violence in the street, plenty of conservatives hate women's football, both in government and in politics. The fact that women continue to play through it all, even expanding teams and playing more and more visibly, certainly shows a determination and love of the game. They even organized tournaments, some of which were shut down by the government. When the Women's World Cup is in Italy is announced in 1970, Brazil takes notice. The following year, 71, Brazil is asked to send a team, but the football nation refuses. The media, however, are absorbed with the 1971 Women's World Cup. The Brazilian media publish photos of the matches, and while much of the cover coverage is negative, they still do cover it, calling out players by name, reporting the results of matches. They cover the women's activities on and off the pitch. Again, the National Sports Council reissues the ban. But at this point, most consider it a joke. In 1971, FIFA lifts its ban on women's football, and women's football begins in earnest again around the world. Women in Brazil continued to defy the ban. On April 11, 1983, the National Sports Council finally ended the ban against women fo women's football. Women's football teams, which had actually been formed before the ban had by 81, started playing in leagues. And after the ban is lifted, Brazil's football federations form the so-called first women's tournament in Sao Paulo. More than 40 teams instantly sign up. 
This tournament was likely the brainchild of Rose de Rio, or Roselli Cordero Filardo. Rose de Rio, de Rio had been, through the 70s and 80s, a huge fan of women's football and regularly advocated for lifting the ban. She had organized many tournaments and matches. In 1984, there were 3,000 registered women's teams in Brazil. By 1987, there were 40,000 registered female players. In 1984, Rose de Rio tried to organize a national team. Remember BK Femina or the Dallas Sting? In the 70s and 80s, because federations didn't fund women's soccer, club teams put on their nation's colors. In Brazil's case, this club was Esporte Club Radar of Copacabana, or Radar. In 1988, FIFA Women's Invitational, this is not a World Cup tournament, Radar represented Brazil. They topped their group and finished the tournament in third place. In 1991, at FIFA's first official Women's World Cup, Radar again represented Brazil. In the group stage, they beat Japan's Natashiko, but fell to Sweden and the U.S. Brazil's team, known as Canarinhas, or the Canaries, quickly became a powerhouse in South America. They have won the Copa America nearly every time it has been held, and the Pan-American Games and the International Women's Football Tournament. They have been serious contenders for the World Cup for more than 20 years. Some of the players you should know, Marta, with 108 goals in 154 caps. Cristiane, with 96 goals in 104 appearances. Cici, 33 goals in 47 appearances. And Formiga, with a staggering 198 caps over 25 years. Marta, last summer, to the young girls of Brazil and around the world. It's wanting more. It's training more. It's taking care of yourself more. It's being ready to play 90 plus 30 minutes. This is what I ask of the girls. There's not going to be a Formiga forever. There's not going to be a Marta forever. There's not going to be a Cristiani. The women's game depends on you to survive. Thanks for listening, as always. If you like the show, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Uh, please share the show with your friends on social media or word of mouth. Uh, and if you'd like to join the discussion or help with research or if you have story ideas, uh, join our Slack channel. You'll see uh, links in the show notes to all that. Uh, don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at ForgottenXI. And I will see you next time.